You're listening to the Endless Pursuit Podcast, where we talk about all things hunting and the great outdoors. Let's get into it. No, I prefer it's go time. It's been a big couple of days, so we're recording. It's only been four days since our episode came out on Monday, and that was on the National Feral Deer Action Plan. It was a big one. It was. And look, thank you to everybody out there that's either got involved, uh, tried to share things. I know last look there was 60-odd shares of our posts. Just trying to raise awareness of what's going on here. So the feedback's been pretty positive on the whole. Uh, there's been a few that disagree, and, and that's fine. Everyone's going to have different viewpoints on this as well. But uh, there's been a few people that don't think they will bring poison in, which is a little scary. But uh, I guess one of the things I will be doing when this episode comes out is we're going to throw it up on our Facebook because it's really hard to put YouTube clips up on Instagram. They don't like it. Mm. So we'll put it up on Facebook. It's the actual trap that they will be using. So I've got the video. I've watched it. Dodge, you've watched it. Yeah, I've seen it. What are your thoughts on that? Oh, look, it's a contraption. It's definitely taken some thought to get to that point. And they say that, oh, look, I'll leave it to the listeners. They're going to see it. But for those that don't watch it, it's interesting. There's obviously different safeguards or what not to eliminate or decrease the amount of native animals or non-target species hitting the bait. Now, I can see some problems even with the video. There was a, a kangaroo with its head in there and it definitely could have got a mouthful before that thing closed on its head. So, Yeah, it's interesting. I, I don't think it's foolproof, but I... No. One of the things I've liked about this has been a lot of discussion and that was what we wanted to achieve here. We wanted to just get it out into the community and raise awareness and for people to read the document, check out our clips our, our podcast or the video and and have that dialogue and it's also raised some things that i didn't even think about myself and i've had listeners share things with with us and they've been some really interesting points and i guess you know when i was first thinking about secondary poisoning i was thinking i just went straight to dingoes but i didn't even think about other things like quolls or eagles and went wow that's there's so many more animals that can be impacted here by the secondary poisoning. And Dodge, I believe you did a bit of research on 1080 and well, I'll let you explain it. Yeah, it's uh, again, I had received some information from some listeners on different topics. And one of the comments was very surprising, not one I had come across before, that 1080 the research that's being used and produced to say that 1080 is safe with natives and things like that is coming out of WA, Western Australia. It's not based on research conducted on the East Coast. It's not based on research conducted even in South Australia or Queensland. It's uh, Western Australian information. Now, to unpack that a little further, the reason that that is the case the plant itself that 1080 comes from, uh, what's it called? Gastrolobium is a genus of flowering plants in the family of Fabaceae. Now, I've said both of those words poorly, and I've please forgive me. 
but the genus consists of over 100 species. 98% of those species, so 98 out of 100, just in case you couldn't do that maths, come from WA. Now, what they're saying is that 1080 doesn't affect the natives in Australia. The facts themselves, and we'll put up this website, but it's a government website, wa.gov.au is the back end of it. The facts themselves agree with that in WA, but then it's got here a list of species and the units of 1080 required before the animal is impacted and killed. The numbers themselves there second guess their whole argument. And I'll just give a couple of quick examples. Again, I'll put this link up so that listeners can do their own research and make their own conclusions. These are only our opinions based on the facts we found, so feel free to fill yourself with knowledge. But just going to give a couple of examples here. The Rosenberg's goanna. Now, Matt, you're a, you're a, I don't know what the word is, snake person, goanna person. It's called a herpetologist if you did it professionally. That's the one. But yes. Right. So you're into that sort of thing. Is that Rosenberg's goanna? Is that something we have over here on the East Coast? We do have Rosenberg monitors over here on the East Coast. Monitors. Sorry. So 235 units is what's required to knock around a goanna in WA. The next point, it says in South Australia, only 38 units are required. So it's a significant drop because the animal is further away from WA and it's not used to that plant being in its environment. The next one, which is scary because we have these nationwide, there's one outside in the tree of my house right now, brush-tailed possums in Western Australia, 118 units. In South Australia, 0.64 of a unit. It's not much. No, that's a morsel. When you put that together with the video of the contraption that they're saying will be used to bait the target species, 100% a possum could get in there and take one piece before that lid closes or grab a piece that a deer might drop on the ground. Or I just I don't know how they can back up their claims that this is not, it's not of impact to native animals. Well, further to that, I jumped onto some New Zealand stuff. A couple of listeners said, hey, check out New Zealand because they've got some interesting things. So I'll read this to you because this is directly off a website. New Zealand Food Safety Authority control relating to feral meat residues. So basically what they're saying is if you're taking feral meat for human consumption, and I'll read this word for word. Don't take wild or game estate animals from an area where 1080 has been laid until either, well, sorry, it's a dot point, four months after the operation has ended or two Hmm. months after the operation has ended and after 100 millimetres of rain has fallen. Wow. That rings alarm bells to me massively. It's a government advisory, isn't it? Now- I've had a few people, I think you even said to me, the thing will die, you won't have to worry about it from a a human consumption point of view in the podcast. And I get where you're coming from, but man, that worries me. Because the other thing reading up on New Zealand is, geez, there was some impact on their streams and trouts Mm. and different fish. I do not see how anyone can see this as a positive. And... On top of that, I read an article that came from, I think it was ADA, 
and they were saying they broke down and counted in the document uh, and they said it was something like, don't quote me the exact number, it was 400, 500 times that they used the word feral deer and I think recreational hunter was the term they used and it only featured maybe 23 times or something along those lines. So don't quote me on those exact numbers, but that came out of the uh, ADA, I'm pretty sure it was, and very interesting. You can really see this is a one-sided plan and whilst the committee is there, the other thing I'd like to know about this is I I've know who the committee is because it's all on the website, but I really am interested in who's funding all this. There's a lot of government employees, mainly from WA and SA. There was one from Queensland, but I'd like to know who's funding all this because this is a lot of work that's gone into this and it's very pro-poison. What's the gain? Yeah, it's very interesting. So, look, as we've said it before, we're not fully against poison. I think this is this is something that we should be fully against because there's just so – like we talked about the dog baits and a bird might take it and drop it. By that bird dropping it in a yard that we had someone's dog then ate it and died. Now, my concern with that is what happens to horses? What happens to cows? What happens to those animals that are on the farms? Now, I get for farmers that deer are a problem, especially if there's three, 400 of them on their property. But if they're using baits for deer and the bait gets out, is that not going to be an issue with their cows, with their sheep? Like, it just doesn't make sense. I, I just don't think this has been completely really thought through. And I can see there being a lot of secondary impacts here and, and concerns from my point of view. Yeah. I don't, I'm pretty interested to see how the webinar goes and see if there's any opportunity for QA. I don't know how that would work, assuming there's going to be a couple of hundred people watching it, hopefully more. So I've never been on one of those government Q&As, but interested to uh, watch that play out and see how it rolls. I'll be shocked if they take questions. I just think that this will be an information session and they'll just, you know, if you've got feedback or questions, it'll be email them. So, Mm. Um, and on that, thank you to everybody that's reached out. Thank you to everyone that's taken action and either shared it or sent an email in with all their comments. It's really important that we do this, I feel anyway. So, um, yeah, a big thank you to all our listeners that have got involved. And just a reminder to the listeners, send us an email and we'll respond with the templates that we've put together. Uh, there's two that we're going to send you. One is a little more open in paragraphs. The other one's a little more dot pointed and it gives you the room to write your own reasons why hunting is important to you, what what makes it a legacy for your family, what's the heritage behind it for you or Make it personal because it is personal. It affects all of us personally. And the comments Matt was saying there, we've had a lot of people reach out, definitely have. It's had over a 1,000 or so comments across the 60-odd shares, and some of them have been enlightening, some are humorous, and some have said, I'm a member, this is one in particular, I'll paraphrase it, I'm a member of three clubs, large name clubs, not one of them has mentioned the plan. So it's not just the hunters that are not knowing about it. I'm still questioning the larger organisations and what their role is in it. I've spoken to a few and they've said we're compiling our response. But why is it not done already? Or why is it not out there? Why is it leaving it longer so that less people can respond? So it's still a call to action. Jump on it. 100%. 
we have got till May to get that feedback in. So please let's keep the ball rolling and make sure that we're getting it out there and, and talking about this. At the end of the day, it doesn't benefit us. Uh, it benefits everybody. So it's not like just myself is going to get anything out of this. Um, in fact, you know, we've had – I've copped a bit of criticism and, you know, generally it has been mainly support, which is fantastic. But at the end of the day, this is about making sure that hunting continues and – why are we wasting these animals by looking at a poisoning option when they've got such a value on them? It's crazy to me. So, But let's move on to good news, Dodge. Let's go. What have we got? We have an announcement to make. It's a good one. We have partnered with Ridgeline and it is a good one. I'm, uh, I'm really excited. I love their Escape camo, that pattern. You can see on the hat I'm wearing at the moment. I am a big fan it just looks it looks good. They've put a lot of work into it. I've mentioned it before. We've spoken to it on a previous podcast. I've got a bit of a legacy with Ridgeline. And it goes back to my first deer that I actually shot. And I was with Matt Donaldson. I've spoken about him on previous episodes. He came to New Zealand with me. We were on a property together and it was an interesting hunt. I, we were inexperienced, let's say that. I was definitely a shooter, not a hunter. No idea what I was doing. We just happened to be on a magical property that had hundreds of fallow deer running on it, something Matt dreams about most nights. It's how he goes to bed counting them. And we came over this ridge. We weren't together, actually. Matt had peeled off and done something else. But I came over this ridge and there was two bucks by themselves in the middle of this open paddock and I had great tree cover on my side to get to them. And this is in hindsight. I not once thought about any of those things at the time. I made a reasonable beeline for them, laid down on the side of the hill, waited until they walked a little bit closer and took a shot with my trusty old 223 and dropped one. And the moment I took the shot, another shot rung out and the other one dropped. Little did I know that Matt had been sitting in the background watching the situation unfold and knew what I was doing, didn't mess it up for me, but had obviously agreed with himself that he'd take a shot as soon as I did. I shot one and he shot the other and they died within 10 metres of each other. Now, there's a rusty old photo somewhere and I'll drag it up of me wearing a Ridgeline jumper, just a hoodie, sorry, not a hoodie, just a jumper and because it was on, where were we, down near Tumbarumba somewhere. I don't even remember what time of year it was. It wasn't particularly cold, but it was cool. It was late evening, afternoon. Our trophy photos are under his spotlight of his headlights, I think, because we didn't know what we were doing. So it was, uh, yeah, it was an interesting hunt, but it was the first bit of clothing I bought. You went to the hunting shop, you bought your first rifle, you got a gun bag and you got a Ridgeline jumper or a shirt or it's just been in Australian hunting community for yonks. So, so, and I did mention previously on another episode when I think Kyle was talking about some of the gear he had that, you know, their gear has come a long way. It's definitely improved and they're no longer just a brand of clothing you buy at the gun shop. They've sort of really stepped it up in the technical clothing aspect and I, uh, I look forward to working with them in the future and uh, keeping an eye on all the new products that they keep dropping because they're pretty exciting. Yeah, I'd agree. And the other one is it's not just hunting gear. Like their fishing gear is pretty bloody good too. I was checking out the whole fishing range. When we started talking to them, we were really – you know, I didn't even know they made fishing gear and I started to have a look at it and went, oh, this is actually 
pretty damn good looking clothing and I do like to fish. So I think I'll be definitely jumping on more than just the hunting gear from them. But uh, the more exciting news is we've got a code for our listeners. It's not just good news for us, is it? So any listener out there who would like to jump on the website, check out Ridgeline Clothing and when you buy something, put in the code ENDLESS15 and that will give you 15% off. The only thing it won't do is if there's already discounted 15% off or something like that, it won't apply a further 15%. So anything that's not discounted, you will get that 15% off. Yeah, it's great. I'm really excited. We've been a fan of their stuff for a while now and yeah, like it's good to have that partnership and it's good to be able to give something back to our listeners as well. So especially this time coming into, you know, we're, we're in Jen, we're coming towards the end of Jen and we're leading up. The rut's only a couple of months away now. It's the perfect time to upgrade. So I'll be upgrading my gear and I'm excited. And I've got the green light. I don't think I told you, Dodge. I've got the green lights to get out there during the rut. So wow. I'm excited. Where are you going to go? State foresting? I think I want to go down. I think maybe down south. Oh, I'm not too sure. I'm sort of devastated because the ballot area, I just had the only state forest I've, I feel that I've really got tuned in at the moment was Manor State Forest because I was down there for the ballot and I didn't draw. I drew, I drew a reserve spot this year, so unless someone pulls out. So I just don't have anything dialed in just yet in a state forest. So I'll see how I go. I don't know if I'm pushing the parcel to get out a bit more beforehand to check out some state forests, but. When do you find out about the reserve spots? They will call you if someone pulls out. So I actually, the last last years, I was a reserve spot and I got the call up and I took it obviously. But look, I think I got that phone call. I think I got it in like February or March. Like it was late. Like it's not, put it this way, I had zero time to actually get down there and check out the area as well. So, actually on that, shots fired. We had a listener write in and ask us. I've sprung this on you. You didn't even know. We had a listener write in and wanted our thoughts on, is it wrong to go and walk around in a state forest, check your game trail cameras, watch where the animals are moving, all those things when you're not hunting? Because you could be then spooking. So the way it was written was if a forest is booked out or even the ballot section, if you've got a ballot spot and with two weeks to go, you rock up there walking around, scenting up the area, doing your recon, you're probably putting the other hunter at a bit of a disadvantage, especially if it's a small state forest. So depending how large the area is. Is that wrong? Like, I know you haven't ever really done a lot of state forest hunting, so maybe you're not the best person to talk to here, but what are your thoughts on that? Two-pronged attack. Morally, yes, I feel that's wrong. Legally, not a problem. Public space. As long as you don't have a firearm or a bow with you or hunting dogs or whatnot, you're not doing anything wrong walking into a state forest. Checking your game cameras... I mean, you could be looking at bird nests. I know you're not. So I think you need to look at it from a position of if you were the person 
and someone else came walking through checking their cameras, I mean, you'd obviously be annoyed about it. There's nothing you can do because it's not illegal. But would you be impressed with that if it was your spot and someone else is walking through at the same time? Now, my I know I don't do much public land. When I drew Snake Island, we had a discussion, all the hunters, bar one, because he didn't join the chat group or didn't respond to anyone's calls or texts. And we had a little group going and it was a bit of a discussion of, you know, drop your two or three spots that you think you'd like to hunt based on scouting or mates recommendations or whatnot. And then discuss with other people if that overlaps with theirs, try and pick some spots, basically trying to stay away from everyone else. So that everyone had a fair chance. Hog deer are pretty prolific for scenting things and not being seen. So that worked really well and everyone stayed in their own zones, except the one guy who wasn't in the chat group. Now, he pulled up his boat a day late onto the beach. I saw it happen. It was late at night. He camped right near us, like five meters from the back of my tent. Not once came and spoke to us. I saw him in my area and two other people saw him in his area. He shot a deer in an exclusion zone, dragged it out through three other people's areas, back to his boat, left all his junk on the side of the beach and went home. When I say junk, I mean cans of beer and rubbish. And then went home. He was one of the only people in our section, in our lot, that actually shot a deer. Now, I know that that was factual. I know that he shot it in a spot he shouldn't have. And I'm not sure if it was at nighttime or whatnot, but uh, it was definitely where it wasn't supposed to be. So he walked through our zones and we all discussed and made agreements, gentleman's agreement, handshake sort of unwritten rule that we wouldn't do that to each other. And it definitely, I didn't see any deer. It was bad weather. But I also can't deny the fact that him doing that may have had an impact on that. So I really tried not to do that to other people and kind of expected the same. But again, I think it's just an unwritten gentleman's rule. So what are your thoughts on it? When you said my spot, well, it's not. It's public lands. You haven't got a spot. So uh, look, I... I sort of look at it and go, the guys that are really successful are the guys that spend a lot of time in the bush. Now, that could be because they are able to book it. There's a lot of forests that get booked out pretty quickly. So if you, just because you can't take the rifle, doing the legwork and finding the animals and finding how they're moving can then make you successful when you get there. I don't think... You can sort of say, hey, you're not allowed to go in there. I don't think you can say that's not fair to other hunters because when you just get dumped in a new area and you don't know what's going on, you've got to find all that out. And if you're only there for, say, a day or one night like or two days at best, I just, yeah, for me, I think that I'm not really against it and I'm not. I wouldn't be upset if someone was scouting an area when I'm there. As long as they're doing the right things, wearing blaze orange, you know, like um, not blaring music and things through the bush. But if they're just scouting, looking, I haven't got an issue with it personally. I'll get on to the blaze orange comment in a second. When I I did say my spot, and that was because we literally had a map and we drew up sections where each person would spend their time hunting and yeah, I agree it's public land, but this is balloted public land with only seven people on it at a time and six of the seven had an agreement that, you know, you would stick to your own zone. So 
I'm not saying like, he wasn't part of that, so he didn't know that, right? He chose to ignore that or he just didn't want to be a bar- part of it or he just blatantly ignored it and he was successful. So I can't – I'm sort of jealous in that way. But I'm not unhappy with what I did by staying in my zone and doing what I did. I have another question for you as a follow-up for this in a second about my spot and sharing spots on public land. The other question you just mentioned, though, or the statement was blaze orange. Does everyone in state forest have to wear blaze orange or just those hunting? Well, no, you, not everybody has to wear them, and that's why we talk about target identification is so important. It's a legal requirement when hunting, but not if you're just a visitor to the state forest because – where do they find that information out? They're not signing anything to go into an area. Mm. They go into an area and, you know, usually the, the forest is signed pretty well saying this is a hunting forest. But that's one of the important things to make sure you identify what's not just where your target is but beyond your target because there could be users, they have no idea that hunting goes on there. They might be out there just picking mushrooms. Yeah, walking dogs, camping, especially at this time of year with you know, families on holidays and whatnot. So sticking with that conversation, what are your thoughts about giving your spot away to people in state forest if it's public land? It's not your spot. Okay, so I just want to rewind a little bit back again. Okay. You said there was the you, – you specifically were talking about the ballot on Snake Island. I think that's a little different to what the question that came in was because – that question that came in was on the back of every state forest. So you don't get the opportunity to talk to anybody else. Like you guys, obviously there was an information session. You're able to sort of swap numbers or a WhatsApp or whatever it was. You don't get to do that in normal state forests. So I think that's completely different. And if you're just going in, you could be going in with 40 other hunters you don't know anyone, I don't think you can then sort of get upset if someone's in your area. I think if you came across them, it'd be a good idea to say, hey, I'm moving in this direction so that you have an idea, especially when you're you know, potentially about to pull the trigger that you know where possibly the other person may be in the vicinity. But other than that, I think it's just, it's just fair game. Now, getting back to your question, this is a tricky one. I have no problem talking about what state forest I go to or I hunt in. Like I had no problem telling people that I went to Manus for the ballot. I had no problem saying I saw a heap of deer. I That doesn't bother me. If anyone out there and goes, oh, there's deer in Manus, I'm going, okay, good luck. If I ran into a hunter when I'd ended my ballot section on the way out, I probably would have given them tips, yes. To the point, we've had two listeners who were lucky enough to draw in the ballot and I reached out to them and said, hey, did you get this section? Because I'm pretty dialed in on that section, I would have shared it. I had don't really have an issue with that. But I can see other people not being happy sharing spots. And I think it comes down to the individual. Some people are really happy to help. Some people, you know, you see it on Facebook all the time and shout out to Trivia. He takes new hunters away all the time and he posted a video up at the moment of getting a bloke his first deer. I think that's a positive thing and I view it that way. 
Will, would I be spewing if I uh, gave someone, said, hey, this is the spot, I was there, didn't manage to pull the trigger and they went out the next week and got one? I'd be happy for them. I'd also be a bit devoted that it wasn't me. But, I mean, that's also life and I view the success probably in a different manner. Yeah. So for me, I would have no real problems in giving away definitely forests. I'd have no issue saying, hey, this is the forest. I'd have no issue saying it's the north northeast section, anything like that, depending how well I knew the person. If it was a ballot, I find that a bit different because they're pretty special and I'd like to see everybody get a deer on that ballot hunt as opposed to just a regular state forest. But look, that's just me. Your thoughts? I think the guide in me is about helping and I've mentioned it before that a shared success is just as enjoyable as a personal success for me and that's the majority of the reason I guide other than the fact that it gives me the opportunity to hunt animals I can't afford to hunt regularly. So I agree with you that giving out like general locations, I know people that hunt deer, they say at Willow Tree and they'll just say on the western slopes. Like they won't even, they're too scared to even narrow it down beyond that. I don't know. I'm more of a, I've got private property, so it's a bit different. And I can say that, you know, my private property is in Mossvale. That's fine. There's lots of private property in Mossvale. It's not, if I said I'm successful in a state forest in the Southern Highlands, well, that narrows it down. But I would, yeah, I don't know. I just, I'm a little bit uh, more open about that. Because if I say to you, hey, I'm heading down to Bondi, and then I come back and saw some stuff. I'd tell you where it was. I wouldn't say, hey, this is the GPS coordinates, but head over in this track and head over there. That's where I saw some deer because it's, you know, helping other people is what I really enjoy about doing what we do. So I agree everyone's different and everyone's hunts for different reasons, but one of the main reasons I hunt for is to help others and to share in that. If that person then bags a deer off my information, that's like, other than me not shooting it myself, I'm elated that they did that and I would share that. So, no, it's an interesting topic that came off the back of yours, but I don't know. Uh, I haven't got any state forest stuff organized immediately, so I can't talk about it. And when I do do my challenge, I'll give away the GPS coordinates of where I shot the deer and didn't have to eat a dang chili sandwich, okay? I'll tell you what, I sent you a video the other day. I uh, put a chili plant in the garden bed. Oh, and, you uh, did. Oh, my God. They are hot. Like, I love chili and this thing, I was floored. Um, my <laughs> wife was laughing her head off. She was also a bit upset. She's like, I wanted to use these to cook and I don't think I can anymore because I throw them in. I got uh, one of my favorites is chicken heart and I marinate it in a garlic chili and soy and then just chuck them in the oven or throw them in a pan. doesn't really matter. Usually, if you cook them up in the bit of the broth, it, you know, it will take out that heat in the chili. Whoa, not this time. No. I nearly died. I, I took a bite of one and just started coughing and choking. Ugh. It was so hot uh, but enjoyable uh, when I finished it and the heat had gone away, but, yeah, geez, it was quite warm. What nationality are you? As in my background. Oh, eating chicken hearts? You're eating tripe? Well, I mean, okay, well, I'm Australian. Is that something you learned from travel? I don't know. I, I, so I've just always wanted to eat the whole animal. Like I just, for me, awful. I am, If I go to a butcher and I see that they've got heart, liver, bang, I'm straight in there. Like 
I just think we waste so much food and good food, especially organ meat. We waste so much of it. So for me, it's a bit of a delicacy. And I, I'll tell you what, I did the hearts. I reckon the best way I've ever had them was at Brazilian barbecue. They mm. were absolutely delicious. I wish I knew how they did them, but mine aren't too bad. They're pretty nice. I'll, uh, I'll make them for you one time because they're pretty damn good. Just a double shout out to Trivia. He put some photos up the other day of deer heart that he had ate for the first time. And his comment was, never leaving this in the bush again or something like that. And and Kyle is the same. He loves his liver. I don't know what he does with it. I cooked something for the hunting club one night. I can't remember what it was. But, yes, it's like a, I'm going to say made a resurgence because I'm assuming that back in the olden days these things were consumed and then we got spoiled by just eating red meat. Not awful. We don't see it in the store very often unless you go to a decent butcher or you're in the dog food section. But I don't know. I'm looking forward to you cooking the chicken heart one for me without the chili. No, yeah, I wouldn't do that to you. Not these chilies, though. They're horrible. Yeah, a bit of sweet chili sauce or something. Yeah, I, I enjoy them. It's quite nice. So. All right, we're going to flip the script a bit tonight. We thought we'd try something new. And Dodge, you're going to take over and you're going to be grilling me as a guest. So like a fake guest, I suppose. So let's get into it. Okay. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Endless Pursuit podcast. Tonight we have with us someone who's spent a little bit of time in the bush over the years, uh, mostly unsuccessful on the harvesting side of things, but successful in the making memories. Matt, welcome to the show. How can I help you? All right. So I'm going to premise that by saying I've probably spent more time in the bush than yourself, (laughs) maybe not hunting, but I have spent a lot of damn time in the bush and when I was... Oh, standing outside people's windows. No, no. I grew up just spending a lot of time down the south coast and spending a lot of time in, in national parks and state forests and just outdoors. I've always been a very big outdoors person and that's been a um, one for me that I've really enjoyed growing up. And I know even when I was at university and holidays, the very first thing was out into the bush and I'd go out to, to Ningen and Burke and, and spend weeks out there. So just something I've always loved. So that's nearly the the reverse of me. See, I grew up on a country block, I suppose, a small country block on the outskirts of town. So I wouldn't say I was in the bush by any means. And we did a, a lot of horse riding, but never in the bush, like horse riding in the bush, but never, like I never yearned to go to the bush on holidays or things like that. And then come full circle now as an adult, that's my place, like, I always thought I'd be an inside person. I actually thought I'd be a draftsman. It's what I did in year 10 at uh, work experience and then pursued it further in year 11 and 12 doing CAD stuff and things like that. But then when I turned 18, all I wanted to do was go hunting or shooting at that time, now hunting. But once I was outside, I just found my jam. So it's so interesting that you've spent more, well, a lot of time doing that in your younger years and I'm more probably catching up to you, but now just in the later years. Well, mine, um, by the time I was 19, I'd pretty much done and been everywhere in New South Wales. And by the time I was probably 23, I've gone through, driven around Australia pretty much or been at least in the states or territories and spent a fair bit of time in them, done multiple trips driving from Sydney up to Darwin and just for a couple of weeks at a time. So, yeah, it's just something I've always, I just love the bush. I love getting out into remote spots and spending time 
in nature away from people so that's been um and i'm a bit older than you as well so it's surprising you didn't pick up hunting earlier being in those situations just didn't have anyone well i didn't have anyone that did it right so it was not something that i ever sort of thought about and then with my sport it was sort of just getting bush was getting away from sort of sport and training and things like that so it was always something i was very busy and my background was my my father was a professional athlete and you know we, when we grew up that was the big thing is is pushing very heavy in sports and always training and things like that so it was my sort of escape to get to the bush and get out fishing and i, I did a lot more fishing and spear fishing than the hunting side of things and i get to be honest one of the things was just how hard it was to get the gun license mm. and just all the the paperwork and not having anyone that was interested in it it's sort of one of those things, like I had jet skis for a while and, man, it was fun, but it was also super crappy because if none of your mates had a jet ski <laughs> and you're on your own, they're only fun for maybe 20, 30 minutes and then you're on your own and it's like this is boring. Uh, same as when we had motorbikes. Motorbikes were great because we sort of spent a lot of time in, you know, riding up and down trails and the like. Uh, it was great with a couple of people. But if you're just on your own, there's only it, it just got boring, which is funny because now when I like to hunt, I like to hunt, you know, I like being with people in camp, but I prefer to be on my own when I hunt. In fairness, I say I haven't done a lot of hunting with another person beside me. So I guess it's uh, I probably am a bit tainted and I can't say much there. The other barrier to entry was cost as well. It's a pretty expensive hobby. And especially as I went back to university late in life. So I went straight out of school and just worked out it wasn't for me. I was just, yeah, I couldn't sit in a room and I spent more time down in the gym and the pub. So uh, on campus and decided that it was probably not the the time for me to be at uni. So I got out and got into the workforce and the like. And then I went back to uni after doing a few different other things. And that really, you just got no money. and. You know, I was renting a house and I've gone through a few things that's happened in my life, a couple of ACLs, re- reconstructions in the knee and they're not cheap. And then having other hobbies that my mates did as well, that really was what probably held me back. I probably would have got it in, I probably would have got into it a lot earlier if I hadn't gone to uni a bit later the second time and also then, you know, had some mates that were interested and I, I wasn't spending money in other sort of hobbies. I can sympathise but understand your your comment about jet skiing by yourself. I spoke earlier about going horse riding. I actually quite competitively rode horses for many years and travelled around the country and did quite well out of it. I was having no ribbons hanging up behind me, but I ended up with a couple of state titles and then some national championship titles. At, I was like, I don't know, 14 to 16-year-old. And it just became a solo thing. I was riding at home every day after school, summer, winter, and it just got boring. So boring, repetitive and boring. I really enjoyed the shows because it was social aspect and the traveling side of things. But, and exactly like you said, now hunting just by yourself is just peace. It's just so enjoyable to seek that bit of quiet and peace. Yeah, as much as I do like talking and and being around people and like exactly what you said being in camp with everyone so good great 
sitting around the campfire, but then just that opportunity to split up in the morning and say, right, guys, catch you back here later and head out for a stroll. It's just, it's refreshing. Now, it sort of contradicts what I said earlier about a shared experience is an enjoyable one. And even just sharing it in camp is is as enjoyable as being beside someone, probably not as much actually. Being beside them is pretty exhilarating when they pull the trigger. But uh, no, I can uh, definitely sympathize or feel what you're, what you're saying there. So what are we on here for tonight, Matt? What uh, would you like to learn from the podcast this evening? You've come to us as a guest and reached out and kept me in the dark about it. So I don't know what you're here for. What can we help you with tonight? Well, you're not helping me with anything. It's no. going to be the other way around tonight. Right. We are going to, I thought, tap into my, I guess, university qualifications, my tertiary qualifications, and go down the path of training for hunting. Is this the qualifications that you bowed out of because you are at the pub too much at the uni, you just said? Or is that a different course? No, no, that was the first time. Was, <laughs> so, practically the same course. I'm not going to lie. I just came back to it. A, <laughs> when you were mature and realized it was more important than drinking. Yeah, pretty much. But uh, so my background is I have a degree in a Bachelor of Education. Mm-hmm. And essentially, I spent three years studying uh, personal development, health, and physical education. And some of the topics in there are first aid, sports medicine and really understanding an athlete's perspective. That's a topic that's very close to my heart. Yeah, well, you know what? I sort of thought about this and thought, hey, from a training perspective, a lot of people do train because if you are out climbing mountains, if you're out spending a lot of time in the bush, there is, depending where you go, there is an element of fitness for some. Now, for some others, there's not, but it's a pretty tricky thing to get your mind around if you've never done it before. And there's some little tips and tricks to break down what they are. And that's what we'll focus on, I think, tonight is just breaking it down. And good time of year. A lot of people are out there at the moment going, hey, new year, new me. And that generally always falls flat and fails. And there's some reasons as to why that happens because people, I guess they don't, they go out straight away and they don't set what we call smart goals. So a smart goal is specific, measurable, achievable, realistic, and timely. So if you go out and say, I'm going to drip 20 kilos in the next six weeks, oh, it's probably not going to happen. And when the weight's not coming off like it, you thought it would, you're going to lose that motivation and you're going to fall flat. That's one element of it. And then the other elements are the actual principles of training and how you set up your training how to not plateau, how to keep improving, and also how not to get bored because a lot of people go out and they might not have any idea what to do and then all of a sudden they're doing things where they can get injured or they get bored and they just go, no, I'm over it, I'm out. I feel like this is an intervention and you're about to kick through the door behind me and drop a banner down and say, Dodge, you need to get fitter and lose 20 kilos in six weeks and here's how you're about to do it. Well, not really. I mean, if you want to listen to my advice... (laughs) Like our listeners, feel free to. If you don't, that's fine as well. But it's just, I think it's a really good time, especially for me, this is my goal at the moment is the rut. And I, I said earlier that I've, I'm now getting out for it. And I think it was on our very first podcast of the year that I said I'd set my goals just to train and have that fitness in case I could get out. So I'm really glad that that was sort of the, the small goal that I'd set and I'd started working towards it because 
it's been a few weeks and a few weeks can definitely impact. So there's, I guess what we really want to talk about is the actual principles of training. Is there where people go right or wrong in sort of, I guess to, uh, there's so much information out there and there's so much to talk about, but I always talk about the principles of training. They're really important to an individual who's training for something. Now, I remember them by an acronym called VW Sport. And what they stand for essentially is V stands for variety. All right. Variety is the spice of life. If you are not doing variety, you're going to get bored. I always say this, if you you might love something, but if you were to do it every single day and it was the same thing over and over and over, it gets monotonous and you will just stop loving. You will stop having the passion. You won't enjoy it. So it's important when you're training to make sure your training program has variety. Don't just throw on a backpack, put some weights in it and go for a walk every single day. You will get tired. You will drop off. So mix it up. Next one's the warm up and cool down so you don't get injured. And we're not going to go through in specifics of what to do for those, but that's just one way. Make sure you're stretching, make sure you're getting the body up to temp- uh, temperature, make sure the blood flowing, heart rate's elevated before you start training and the opposite at the end. All right, so that's the VW part. Then we get into sport part. So specificity, all right, root word, specific. So when we talk about being specific training, that depends how you train. That depends on how you hunt. If you're someone that just walks in for a kilometer and sits and waits, well, that's a lot different to someone that's going to go for that really hilly terrain and is going to be climbing mountains all day. You need to make sure that your training is specific to what you are doing. You also need to, and I know you've bagged out my backpack on many occasions about how much weight's in it, but I train with that. I walk with that a lot and I'm used to that weight, so it doesn't really bother me. Now, if I hadn't worn that for four months, and then thrown it on and tried to hike up a mountain, I'm going to be stuffed. So it's important to have that sort of specific training of what you're going to need to do. If you're covering a lot of ground and you need that cardiovascular um, endurance, you need to be looking at training and doing things like running. Now, yes, you might go, hold on, but run. I'm not going to be running up the hills. No, but it's about, um, we'll talk about it in a second, it's called the training thresholds. It's how you train to maximize the improvement in different sections. The next part's progressive overload, and that's where you consistently just up your game. So if you're like a weightlifter, if you go out, you're lifting 10 kilo weights for the first week and the second week, by the end of that, you probably start to find that the 10 kilos is feeling pretty light, and that's where you should up it. So you might move it up to 11 or 12, or you could keep 10, but you might have been doing 10 repetitions. Now you move it up to 15. If you imagine a staircase, and that's, that's what you're trying to achieve with it being if you're doing weight training, whether you be running, whether you be cycling, whether you've been walking with a backpack, all those things you can do to up and up and up and up. And I always like to go on the thing, if I'm going hunting, I load my pack up so that when I actually go hunting, my pack's actually lighter than what I'm used to carrying when I'm training because it will be easier for, your, for you to actually do. After progressive overload, we talk about VW Sport. So we've talked about PO being progressive overload. R is really important, Dodge. It's reversibility. Reversibility is the old saying, if you don't use it, you lose it. And if you've trained or you've been out hunting, done a lot of walking, if you get injured 
and you stop what you're doing, you stop that training, reversibility takes effect and you lose muscle mass, you lose all that cardiovascular endurance that you might have built up all through your training and then it drops off. So it's important that you you do factor in. It only takes about two weeks for reversibility to kick in. So if you do nothing, so if you've been really training and then you stop for two weeks, that's where you'll start to lose muscle mass, you'll start to lose that cardiovascular endurance pretty damn quick. And then we talk about the last one was tra- T, training thresholds. Now, when we train, our heart rate really dictates to us the type of training that we're doing. So aerobic is our cardiovascular endurance. Anaerobic is more like the muscle mass or sprints or real quick, sharp, short, sharp movements. The heart rate goes off your max heart rate. So your max heart rate is 220 minus your age, and that gives you your maximum heart rate. If you're trying to target your aerobic, so if you're doing a lot of walking, if you're going to be out up and down hills and things like that, you really want to be training in the sort of vicinity of 60 to 80% of your maximum heart rate. That's the perfect level to target your aerobic system. If you go above that, and I look, I'm a fiend for it. When I go for a run, I just can't help myself. I, I always feel I'm going way too slow and staying in that aerobic bracket. And I, I push up into that sort of that threshold or into the anaerobic threshold, which is good and bad because it means you can do short, sharp sort of bursts, but you probably, it's not great for the aerobic. I'm not achieving as much as I'd like. So they're all considerations that you sort of want to be thinking about when you're training. And anaerobic is generally from 80 to 100%. 80 to 90 is where you want to be for anaerobic. But if you go above 90, uh, don't stay in there too long. It's not probably great for your heart. But the only other thing is really the fit principle. Do you know what the fit principle stands for, Dodge? Will these pants fit me if I keep eating the way I'm eating? (laughs) No, they're – mate, it's – Basically, just a bit of a real easy guide for people wanting to train. It's F stands for frequency, so how often. And if you're going to train three times a week, that's your frequency. The I is intensity. So we just talked about the max heart rate, where you're going to fit. So if you want to be looking at your cardiovascular endurance, you might say, all right, the intensity is going to be, I'm going to target 70%. The time and the type. So the two Ts are... The time means how long are you going to do this for? And if you're looking at trying to build your cardiovascular endurance, you need to be going for at least 30 minutes or more. All right. If it's short, sharp movements, you can you don't have to worry so much about that 30 minute. But if you really want to improve cardiovascular endurance, you want to be at say 70% for that entire 30 minutes. And that's when you start to really make progress. And the last one's the type. What activity are you going to be doing? So at the moment, I'm I'm back into training and I've gone, you know, the twins have got a fair bit better, so I've got a bit more time up my hands now. Yesterday, I was swimming because the day before that, I went for a, a I think it was a six-kilometer run. The couple of days before that, because I had a rest day, is I went for a walk with the kids and I was carrying a couple of kids. So that's sort of weighted um, exercise, but I'm not running. Important that you have rest days and then also important that you're mixing it up but if you look at running, swimming, they're both targeting that cardiovascular endurance to make sure that hopefully when I get out there, I want to maximize the time that I'm out hunting. I want to make sure that I'm covering as much ground as I need to and I'm doing it a lot easier because that makes it more enjoyable in my opinion anyway. How many rest days is too many? For you, seven 
I think that's what you have is probably way too many. Seven days a week, week in, week out, yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's probably a little <laughs> bit too many. But, I mean, hey, that's that's all right. That's, uh, look, that's a, that's a tricky one. It depends on... It depends on you. Look, I, I, I said before, I've had a couple of knee reconstructions. So I can't go and run for three days straight. That third day, I'm causing all sorts of damage and problems. And that's what's sort of really important for me. I do a lot of weight training as well. And the reason being is that coming up to a hunt, especially if it's in hilly terrain, I need to make sure my knee is as supported as possible by that the muscle around it. If I haven't been training, geez, I notice it, not just from the like – huffing and puffing side of things but my knee will be really sore to the point where it'll start to seize up and i just it's no good to me and that's one thing i was really worried about for the ballot hunt last year is having those few days away and doing exercise and carrying a pack and and covering a lot of ground for multiple days i was really worried that it wouldn't hold up the whole time and i might have to sort of just sit and wait for a whole day just to try and recover so i was lucky enough that i did the right things and, and that didn't occur I just got back from a little family holiday of rest days. We went out to Kudjigong River. What is it? Uh, Windermere Dam, just shy of Mudgee. Now, I am definitely fitter at the top half of my body than I am the bottom half. My shoulders and things, like shoulders and arms, the strongest point of my body. Legs, not so much. So we, I took two canoes with us, kayaks, and I went on a, a silly journey. We went across the lake and it was just Grace wanted to go across. So, okay, let's go across. Jumped in one, had her in my lap and the father-in-law in the other one, chucked the life jack- jackets on and and went across. It, it wasn't until we got back, I did the maths on it on Google Earth and we did about three and a half Ks of kayaking and I was sore at the point, but as soon as I hopped out, I was fine, right? There was zero recurring pain or like it wasn't, I was tired from doing it but I wasn't sore. If I had to walk that on reasonably flat ground or around town or whatnot, that's fine. If I had to walk that on a hill, man, you give me 300 metres up a hill at the moment and I am blowing hard. Just ask Hilly about it. When I was in New Zealand, it's a it's a whole nother level. The other thing that I have dealt with in the past and you touched on it briefly with the you know two weeks and your body starts going backwards is dealing with change in altitude not something we have to deal with here in Australia, but I would fly into Montana for a season. And this is back when I was reasonably fit or fit enough to do what we did over there, but do it here. And we were at 7,000 feet. The homestead was at 7,000 feet. And one peak we rode over or hunted around was 11,000 feet. So there was a noticeable difference. Those first three to five days, I was struggling. And then when I came home or... It took about, let's say, five to seven days to sort of acclimatize to that and sort of two weeks before it really normalized in your body. But I reckon it took about two days to declimatize from that. And I thought, you know, when I'd go home, I'd be pumping because I'd be like, oh, lower altitude, I'll be fine for a couple of days. But that didn't last long. So that's something that if you're going to the high country and you live in, you know, at the beach somewhere at ground level, Although it's not a whole lot of difference in Australia, it's definitely something you've still got to keep in touch with. It definitely makes a difference. I think when you talk about acclimatization, you know, we said all the time if we have a sporting event and our professional athletes are competing, so like a World Cup, 
um, the Socceroos went to Brazil. They went over a couple of weeks before to understand and and acclimatize, but because of the lack of oxygen up in there, your body performs differently. And you can get that here. Like I have an altitude training mask, which you put on and it basically limits the amount of oxygen going into your lungs. So you are performing everything with less oxygen. So it makes it that much harder and that can give you other benefits whilst training. So we don't face that here as much, but if you're planning to go on a hunt overseas and especially over to some hilly terrain and altitude is going to play a part it is definitely something you should be thinking about when you're training because you don't want to spend all that money get over there and you're really struggling because you're not used to it or you haven't got the fitness levels as well so i remember there was a i think it was in mexico city there was an olympics there back in the day and some of the world records still stand from that Olympics because it was probably, I think from memory it was Mexico City and it was the highest altitude Olympics ever held. So the athletes were just pumping at a higher performance level and I'm going to say some of the records still stand. Someone can probably correct me on that, but it's amazing what they could produce at a higher altitude once your body got used to it. So I'm, uh, yeah, that's all I've got to say on that because I'm currently living at low altitude and underperforming. So. Just reminiscing about the past. <laughs> so I know one thing I'm bored at the moment, I bought a uh, basically a Stairmaster so that I can climb stairs because essentially trying to mimic what is needed if you're in high country or going up and down hills because that is a – it's so different to walking mm-hmm. on flat ground. They're not even no. comparable. And you might be someone that – like I can go for a run and I can run for probably an hour and I, I won't stop. That doesn't bother me. And you put me on, as you said, a hill walking up on a really steep incline. It's a different level of fitness and I'll be stuffed. That's one that I think you need to think about when you're training, if you train. Now, some people might just go, oh, no, nah, it's all good. I've never had to train. I'm never going to. And that's cool. Get it. But it's an interesting sort of topic because most athletes or most people partaking in a sport, they train for it. They condition themselves physically to be the best they can when the opportunity arises in their sport. So it's something to consider even if you haven't. You know, it might be something that it improves your hunting, just that little bit of training. I also think that I, I love a goal and I love a short-term goal and I love – ticking boxes and going, getting there and saying, yep, got that, got that, got that. I love watching the improvement. And, you know, again, we know I love my tech. So I've got my Garmin watch and that sets my times and tracks everything. So I really enjoy the competitive side of that. And that's one thing, I guess, hunting, like you're competing against the animal, but it's it's a different, for someone that's played sport all their life and always been like a, a super competitive person, the only thing hunting I see is a little bit different is you don't compete against other people because the situations are so different. It's You can't compare apples hmm. to apples. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. Have, have you, you know who Cameron Haynes is? Yeah. Right. Wilderness athlete and bow hunter extraordinaire. So listen to his, I think I've mentioned it before, his audio book, believe it or not, because I didn't read his book, Endure. Now, that guy is a machine, absolute machine, and he's you know probably less than 1%. He's not the norm. He talks about some things in there, 
he doesn't want to be fit for his hunt. He wants to be fit after his hunt. So he wants to be finishing his last day of his hunt before he's even starting to get tired. So a lot of guys will train for a hunt, but then two or three days in, they're starting to wear out and want, and they're just not on their game. Whereas he looks at it as a whole package and he wants to be just starting to enjoy it and having a good time and not hurting at the end of it. So it's just a whole nother, he's just looking past the initial pain and that guy's a machine. He's an absolute weapon. If anyone definitely has some spare time, it's about seven hours worth of audiobook, but uh, definite investment in time, that one. So I am not at the top of my game right now. And it's not, everyone jokes about it and calls me the solo eater and whatnot. Definitely done that to myself, but I haven't been guiding for several years now and just family and whatnot has really taken its toll. I've been lazy. I'm slack. It's no secret. I don't hide that. I love a can of V and a twirl or seven. So I've done definitely done that to myself, but I uh, I could definitely take some tips from what you've said tonight and probably do something about it. The, the problem is when I get out there, I'm like, oh, you know, this is so good. I'm, I'm out in the bush and I just walk a bit slower and breathe harder and still enjoy it. So, yes, it's it's nicer to have these goals and things, but fitness is going to make your hunting experience better, but it's still really enjoyable if you're – I've said it in the last couple of episodes or one episode, I got call myself a chubbawanga. I thought it was pretty funny. I never thought about it before, but if you're a chubbawanga like me, you can still get out there and enjoy things. So don't uh, don't let it hold you back. And, look, it's all relative. Oh, I'm probably the unfittest and fattest I've been in a long time. And especially when kids come along, it really throws a different spatter in the works. You just have so much less time to do things. I, I remember like when I was not even single, but just no kids around, I could find an hour and a half, two hours to do training a day, every day of the week. And you get kids and you can't because you've got their bedtime schedule. They wake up at a certain time. It's not as if I can just leave the house and, you know, go for an hour's run because I've got a little person that I need to look after. So it is much more challenging to be able to tick those boxes. And I think that's where it sort of comes if you are like myself later in life and you've got kids is understanding how you can get the most bang for your buck and and using those training principles, using the fit principle to try and help out as best you can. Because I I remember the hunt we went on and I hadn't done much training for that one because – just hadn't and I had the little fella and been looking after him and whatnot and I remember getting out there and walking and geez I was I was battling and I remember just going what I've got to get back into training and that was that sort of made it worse I guess the whole time for the hunt was just sitting there going man I'm unfit I this isn't enjoyable walking up and down these hills because I'm hurting I'm out of breath I've got to keep stopping for something that I used you know I should have been able to just go power through the whole time so it is something that it can definitely make your hunting experience more enjoyable what can compound that and make it worse is you hadn't shot anything when you shoot something it's worse again like you've got to carry that thing out oh yeah it like i I, admittedly it's slower and more enjoyable after that because you've got something on the ground and you're not specifically hunting anymore but like if you can't walk around with a backpack with 10 or 15 kilos in it, you're not going to be able to do it with something else dead in it. So that's, yeah, that's why I rely on my top half for strength. I can manhandle a fair backpack, but definitely slower steps. 
What do you think of the rule overseas that when you shoot something, you must take all the meat off it? I think it should be implemented here. Right. Uh, Let me formulate a thought around that one. I had thought about this in the past. The reasoning for it in the States especially, it's a different reasoning, right? So it's called wastage laws and – Yes, they don't want you to waste the meat, but one of the main factors over there is they do not want increased predation by bears, wolves, cougars, things like that. If they're learning that, you know, and this is fact, right, there is areas in the States where once you pull the trigger, you've got like half an hour to get that animal out of there before you've got a brown bear on you. They have put two and two together that gunshot equals food. It's just nature. They've learned that. It's worked it out. It's not something you have to deal with here. I mean, there's dogs in the high country and dingoes and things, but I don't think it can be implemented here for the same reasons. I definitely agree that, and I have been, I'm guilty of this. I've mentioned this in the past. I've definitely done it. Shooting animals and not taking meat, be it just shooting them for non-necessity or like I wasn't shooting for meat. So I didn't need to take them. So definitely uh, put my hand up and say I've done it. I don't know whether we could enforce it over here as we don't have the tag system. So over there, if you don't do it and you get caught not doing it, then you lose your hunting rights, you lose your tags. Over here, it's very hard to remove that from someone, especially on private land. I can understand it being a consequence of maybe losing your R license on public land. The flip side of that, though, is... We just need to shoot more deer because there's too many of them. Otherwise, this feral plan and things are just going to keep happening. So like if my freezer's full after shooting one and there's three more next to it, am I a bad person or a bad hunter for leaving those three or am I a sustainable hunter by actually taking out all four and just being able to physically take out the meat from one because I've got no way to store the other three? What's the better option? I don't know if that there's a change of direction on your question. I'll give you a chance to answer your first question first, but I don't think it's a bad thing and I think it could be adopted in here or at least promoted that we reuse or use the meat we take. Do you think it could be one of the reasons why we're not allowed to harvest native animals legally? Like if you is it something that's also doing damage to hunters' reputations or the way the public view hunters? that I've seen a few comments and things on just social media and it's about the bloodlust and people just want to kill. And is it that perception? Now, if if it was a rule that anything you shot, you had to harvest the meat from, do you think that would soften it to the public's eye? And do you think that would be something then you would say, hey, we're happy for some native animals to get culled legally? I know it happens here with kangaroos, but it doesn't happen with everything. It doesn't happen with crocodiles and there's a a large list of natives that we don't shoot or hunt. I just It's something I thought about the other day and thought, hmm, I wonder if that perspective, if that element to it is, I guess, going against hunters' reputations or images. Just something I thought. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I think it would soften... I think a lot of anti-hunters would probably not agree with, but 
yeah, soften's probably the right word, soften their stance on it if we were forced to remove the meat. The flip side being that most of the hunters I now, I know now, do that anyway. It's the shooting side of things that that don't do it. Now, the only reason you can leave meat behind in British Columbia, I'll use as an example because it's top of mind, is if it's damaged by shot. So, you know, you need to take as much edible meat as possible. There is other states where you need to leave that thing looking like a skeleton. You need to remove the muscles between the ribs. You know, you're just the whole flank and everything, even if you're not using it for consumption, you still need to remove it. Now, what you do with it once you've removed it isn't a problem. You can throw it in the bin. You just can't leave it out there on the carcass. Now, that doesn't apply to carnivores, doesn't apply to brown bears, wolves, cats, things like that. It does apply to black bears. They're still on the edible list. So I don't think we've got anything over here that's not edible. The whole pig situation with diseases and things is a tricky one to navigate. And, you know, the amount of times in the recent last three weeks that I've been tagged in videos of people eating foxes and eating <laughs> someone tagged me. Oh, who was it? Oh, good. Um, Joel, Rapid Effects, Antler Man, tagged me in one the other day. Uh, it was a bobcat recipe. And I think he said something like, try this with your next fox. So, you know, it's, yeah, I'll give it a try. Next time I shoot a fox, I'll take the meat and we'll see what happens. I reckon we'll do it. But uh, I don't know. I, I think it's a really good one. It's something I've been better at and still not perfect at. I still leave meat behind. Probably not as when I'm backpacking more so, when I'm private land hunting and have access to vehicle, less of an issue because I'm more inclined to backpack the whole animal out to the vehicle, the short spurt, and then bring it home to the cool room and fully process it. That way nothing gets wasted because whatever's left is sausages. But if you're doing a four-day backpack into the high country and you shoot a samba stag or a samba hind, you're not getting the whole thing out in one trip and you're super dedicated if you're going back in for a second or third trip. And I applaud anyone that does that, but I'm not going to deny anyone that doesn't do that and say they wasted it. So I think it's situational. Oh, look, I agree. I sort of sit there and just go. It would probably fit in your backpack though. Probably would. What a, a moose. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I, I just, I'm looking at a lot of things lately as what, reflecting on the image of hunters. And what are we doing to try and get more people on our side or spinning things? And I, I guess that's, that's what I view sort of this invasive species council's plan. And they're the ones really pushing the poisoning side of things. And just the terminology they use, like feral deer and having it so many times in the plan, that's done deliberately. Even to the point of view calling hunters recreational hunters, that adds an element of being amateur because if you think about a professional athlete compared to a recreational athlete, there is a vast difference. If you put a superstar tennis player that competes in Wimbledon against, you know, the local person down at the local courts, uh, it's going to be, you know, a, a whitewash. The recreational tennis player. Well, yeah. They're going to get hammered. And just the terminology and the wording and, I've just been thinking, how do we improve our image? How do we get more people on the side? How do we educate more people? What are the things that we can do as a collective, as an individual, just to make sure that we're hunting for generations to come? And that was just one I thought, well, what if we all 
What if that was the rule? Imagine that the rule was you must take all the meat off whatever you shoot. And I just think that potentially would squash a lot of arguments of people going, oh, you only kill for the joy of killing. Oh, no, I legally have to take all the meat and we use it. That automatically just shuts that straight down because most people eat. Some people eat a lot more than others. I've got my hand up. That wasn't a shot at you. No, I saw your eyebrows go up, but that was not a shot at you. Yeah, just something to ponder about and think about. and Food for thought, if you will. Oh, I like that. Yeah. Very good. I think it's a good one. I, Yeah, I've seen it from both sides. And like I said, very situational. The professional versus recreational comment is a good one. I mean, I'm technically a professional guide. I've got guides licensed in two different countries outside of this one. Does that make me a professional hunter in Australia? Not on paper. And you've said it before when we spoke about something else, 10,000 hours or so to be professional at something or considered a professional. That doesn't take long. If you've been hunting for 15, 10, 15 years and you hunt reasonably consistently, I think I worked out it was 800 or so days at you know out in the bush, 12 hours a day. Well, you've probably nearly, if you're counting your time up in Darwin and whatnot in the bush three weeks at a time, like those hours tick away. Oh, it's well and truly. Yeah. Those hours count. 100%. And this is where I think the terminology for me, and I've talked about it before when we talked about a beginner hunter or intermediate or an advanced hunter, saying, well, okay, how is it viewed? Is it on animals? Is it on time spent? Is it on uh, level of knowledge? Some people are really academic and they can learn very quickly. They're quick studies. They can gather all that information, but they might not be able to apply it correctly. Other people are not the type that will sit there and read a book, but they will learn by getting out there and getting making those mistakes. And, and that's how I learn. I learn from making mistakes. So I love getting out there and, and making a mistake while hunting because that's how I learn not to do something again. That to me is more beneficial than reading a book or sitting there hearing somebody give me information. That's just how I learn. Everyone's different. But how does that translate to this comment of, yeah, where, where you fit, whether you're professional or recreational? Because I think we've spoke about it before. There's some guys out there that are probably contract shooters who can't shoot as well as some people that are recreational shooters. Is that an element of it as well, your marksmanship skills? Mm, but they might harvest more deer because they've got the access. That guy that, that too, you yeah. spoke about him previously, I don't know him or I'm not going to comment on his skill level, but the guy that uh, Felly mentioned that did the post about shooting 43 or so deer and had a you know good year. Did he just have one private property and shot them all in three nights? Does that make him a, you know, I previously have mentioned that success is something I would consider as a factor to being, you know, a beginner hunter, a novice hunter or or a professional hunter or whatnot. But then that situation, like if you go out in a cull and you shoot 40 or 50 deer in a night, you've probably shot more deer than most people this year. Does that make you a professional or a highly skilled hunter or just opportunistic in a good situation? So. Yeah, the terminology in these, and that's we've had some people reach out to us too that are from the National Deer Plan sort of episode and they've been on different education levels than I am and I can see that in their responses and their emails back to us and correspondence is very well worded and they're really strong at articulating our stance in the sport and I appreciate them, them reaching out to us and I've sort of taken on board some of their comments in my personal response that I sent 
So it's uh, to be able to articulate what we do, does that make you a professional hunter? If you're better at articulating what you're doing and just sort of standing for the things we stand for, the right things, and picking up on the fact that they're calling us recreational hunters instead of, I don't know what the alternative word would be. I think it'd just be hunters. Yeah. That's the, that's the tricky one when you look at this is because there's no, it's not like a sport. Yeah. How do you become a rep player? There's no criteria. No. And I think that's sometimes that goes against us. And I don't know how to word this correctly, but because it's not a sport that can be sort of judged or promoted in a sense, it's looked at differently. And yeah, instead of just calling us a hunter, it's a recreational hunter. It's terminology to push an agenda. We need to be just mindful of it. And sort of come back at it. I'll put my head up. I've called myself a recreational hunter before. And I've never really spent much time thinking about it. And then when I went, oh, hold on, recreational. Same as fishermen. The pros are just the ones that are doing it as a job full time. Isn't it called recreational hunting on our license application? I think so as well, yeah. I think on the back of my license it says recreational hunter. And the only difference is if you do it full time as a job. It is. So if you and you the different licenses are essentially on the back of the only way you're not a recreational hunter is if you have have it as a job. And let's be clear, we couldn't support two hundred thousand professional hunters or shooters. There's just not the work out there. So it's sort of like a irrelevant point that's just a negative sort of stereotype or has that negative connotation. Yeah, just pulled out my wallet. I have yeah, AB recreational hunting vermin control on the back. So are we uh, doing yeah. ourselves an injustice by even having that on there or literally shooting ourselves in the foot by branding us in that, in that manner? I want to, uh, before we move on, I want to go back to my story of kayaking across the dam. I forgot to mention it when we were talking about it. When I was over the other side of the dam, I experienced something I have never experienced before, and that is wild goats being so oblivious to the fact there's a canoe right next to them. And I came around a little, the hunter in me, I was talking to my father-in-law, he wanted to go back. And I said, oh, no, I want to just go around that next corner. I always want to go around that next corner or over that next ridge. There's always this wanting and yearning just to see that one little bit further before you have to go home. Sure enough, I went around the corner. It looked like goat country. And I ended up seeing 15 goats in this one little bay, I suppose, or section. The dam's at 100% capacity right now, so it's way up into the mountains. So I followed it up into this little tributary. And I first saw, and two of them spotted me. They didn't do anything though. But what? And I'll put the footage up. I tried to film it while I was cruising into them, but... There was somewhere I nosed into the shore and it was only that I hit a branch a meter out from the shore that they put their head up and run away. Like they were drinking out of the water right in front of me and eating right at the edge. So it's not accessible land. It's all private land and I was on a family holiday, not a hunting trip. So otherwise I could just keep dreaming about it. However, shooting an animal from a kayak, would you do it? Uh, what type of kayak? Yeah, like what's it going to do? Other well, than more, I'm thinking about rollover. Yeah, yeah, that's what I thought about. Depending too. on how stable, 
if it was a canoe or a kayak, canoes are far more stable than some of the kayaks out there. I could just see if someone's shooting out of the kayak and it rolling over and the gun going underwater and I just, no, that, that's a nightmare situation for me. So mm. if it was on something that was more stable, such as like a little inflatable or something like that, I wouldn't be against it. I don't know the legalities around it. Is there any? Well, I don't know either. I did discuss this with my wife and I think the legalities on this situation would be illegal because it's a public waterway and the land is private. So there. But I think all waterways are public. Uh, well, not if it's on private land. Like if it's a no, it creek is. running through private land. No, it's owned no, by the it owner. is. So I was looking at the DPI. They were showing you on where you can hunt for trout and you are allowed to walk down a, a creek, stream, whatever you want to call it. I think it's about a metre up the shoreline is the private land that you're not allowed to be on, but you are technically allowed to go down that. I'll try and find the posts for it, but it was something I was like, ah, that means that there's no private waterways, maybe a dam, but not an actual, uh, a flowing sort of creek or or, um, river that you're allowed to access it. It's public. So I would think that, you probably couldn't. That's it. Definitely interesting. Hmm. Well, I, I, I vote that it was illegal in this situation. I don't know about other situations, but uh, that like I said, the water levels were at one hundred percent, and during the drought, the water levels were so low. The farmers just got so much more land, but uh, they don't own it now because the water levels back up. But man, anyway. So the next day we did it again. Went straight across the other side, another kilometre across the river and back, or the dam and back, and took Grace over and. Nosed in on a couple of other goats. It was pretty interesting. Something a bit fun. So, no, it was a good time. Yeah, cool. All right. Well, I think we'll wrap it up there. Hopefully, you've got something out of tonight's episode. Remember, if you are looking for new hunting attire, check out Ridgeline and don't forget to use the code ENDLESS15 to get that 15% discount and support the people that are supporting us. So, Dodge, been a pleasure. Likewise, as always. And... I'm excited next week for our next guest. Mm, so am I. Good one, good one coming up. I think everyone's going to love it. All right, guys. Bye for now. Chat soon. If you have a question for the team, shoot us an email. Our email address is theendlesspursuitpodcast at gmail.com. Alternatively, jump on our social media, Facebook and Twitter. You can find us by using the at Hunting Journeys and Instagram. Find us on Endless underscore pursuit underscore podcast thanks for joining us and we'll see you next time